In colonial America, writs of assistance were general warrants allowing customs officials to search for smuggled goods. The purpose of the writs was to enforce British taxes on the colonists. The writs were general in nature and required little more than bare suspicion without oath for their issuance. If the customs officials found smuggled goods in violation of the Crown's tax laws, the colonists were subjected to heavy fines and the seizure of their goods. In 1761, in a court proceeding in Massachusetts, a prominent lawyer named James Otis argued that the writs of assistance violated the colonists' rights. A young John Adams, who was in the courtroom that day, called the speech the birth of the child independence. Otis argued the following. Now one of the most essential branches of English liberty is the freedom of one's house. A man's house is his castle, and whilst he is quiet, he is as well guarded as a prince in his castle. This writ, if it should be declared legal, would totally annihilate this privilege. Custom house officers may enter our houses when they please. We are commanded to permit their entry. Their menial servants may enter, may breach locks, bars, and everything in their way. And whether they break through malice or revenge, no man, no court can inquire. Bare suspicion without oath is sufficient. Thirty years later, Otis's sentiments gave rise to the Fourth Amendment, which states the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Since the Supreme Court's 1967 decision in Katz v. United States, courts have used a two-pronged analysis for Fourth Amendment violations. Number one, whether the individual has a subjective expectation of privacy in the area or object at issue. And number two, whether the individual's expectation of privacy is one society is prepared to recognize as reasonable. But this two-part test has created more questions than answers. Does the definition of a search depend on privacy interests? How do advances in modern technology intersect with the Fourth Amendment's privacy analysis? And what's the remedy for Fourth Amendment violations? Todd and Heather Maxson's case with Long Lake Township in Michigan implicates each of these questions. Fearing that the Maxons were using their backyard as an illegal salvage yard in violation of the town's zoning code, Long Lake Township hired drone operators to fly over the Maxon's backyard and photograph the conditions. Armed with these photographs, the town brought a civil action to abate the nuisance. The Maxons filed a motion to suppress the photographs on Fourth Amendment grounds. The court denied the motion and the Maxons appealed. On appeal, the Michigan Court of Appeals initially held that the photographs violated the Fourth Amendment and should be excluded from trial. But after the Michigan Supreme Court vacated the order, the Court of Appeals later held that even if there had been a Fourth Amendment violation, the exclusionary rule for the Fourth Amendment violation did not apply to civil proceedings. Therefore, the photographs could be used at trial. Maxons again appealed to the Michigan Supreme Court, which agreed to hear the case. Will the Maxons' home remain their castle? Or will technology advances pierce the Fourth Amendment zone of privacy? This 
It's Long Lake Township versus Maxon. Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm your host, Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at Bernkoff. Today, we're talking about a cutting-edge issue in constitutional litigation. How does technology intersect with Fourth Amendment rights? With me is Mike Greenberg, an attorney at the Institute for Justice, a libertarian public interest firm that litigates to secure constitutional rights and freedoms for all Americans. Mike's practice focuses on property rights, economic rights, and free speech. Mike represents the Maxons in this case. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So, Mike, I want to start with the second Court of Appeals decision, the one about the exclusionary rule. In the second decision, the court essentially held that regardless of whether a Fourth Amendment violation occurred, the rule that evidence obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment should be excluded from trial does not apply to civil litigation, like your client's zoning-related proceedings. In the court's view, and I'm going to quote, the exclusionary rule is intended to deter police misconduct, not that of lower-level bureaucrats who have little or no training in the Fourth Amendment. Now, there seems to be some constitutional basis for this conclusion. Boyd versus United States, for instance, that's one of the first important Fourth Amendment cases from the Supreme Court back in the 1800s. It seems to tie the idea of excluding evidence obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment to the rights against self-incrimination in the Fifth Amendment. In other words, using illegal evidence is no different than compelling someone to testify against themselves, which of course is constitutionally prohibited. The only problem is that the right against self-incrimination in the Fifth only applies to criminal cases by its plain terms. Now, over the years since the Boyd case, Courts have sort of grounded the exclusionary rule more in, I would say, public policy terms to deter police misconduct. But even in those cases, and I certainly don't profess to have read through them all, even in those cases, that the exclusionary rule certainly seems geared towards criminal prosecutions. On the other hand, looking at the Fourth Amendment, looking at the backdrop of the writs of assistance and James Otis's famous speech, customs officials were utilizing those writs of assistance mostly to enforce tax laws, which is, I would assume, primarily a, a civil matter. So there would also appear to be some historical grounds for a broader interpretation of the exclusionary rule. So here's the first question to you, Mike. Why should the exclusionary rule apply to your case, a civil one, about zoning violations? 
it's a great historical backdrop and it really does help to provide the simple answer, which is that historical practice supports it. As you mentioned, Boyd versus United States all the way back in 1886 applied what we would understand today as the, the exclusionary remedy for a Fourth Amendment violation. And that case was not a criminal case, as you, but it was a civil case, as everyone there seemed to agree, involving imports seized by customs officials that the government was arguing were subject to civil forfeiture. The government wanted to use papers that it had seized from the importer to prove its, its civil case. And the court said that searching and seizing someone's private papers is a Fourth Amendment violation. And that information gathered from that Fourth Amendment violation can't be used against the person in that civil enforcement action by the government. And to be sure, as you mentioned, the court analogized it to a violation of the Fifth Amendment's protection from compelled testimony in criminal cases. But again, the court steadfastly said, this is not a criminal case, so it can't be a Fifth Amendment violation. We're talking about a Fourth Amendment violation here. And the remedy in this case for a Fourth Amendment violation is that the government cannot use the unlawfully obtained evidence to prove its case. And on that civil criminal distinction, the court acknowledged, and, and I'm quoting here, it may be that this is the obnoxious thing in its mildest and least repulsive form. That is that the illegally obtained evidence is sought for use in a civil, not a criminal case. But, and I quote, illegitimate and unconstitutional practices get their first footing in that way, namely by silent approaches and slight deviations from legal modes of procedure, end quote. And what the court's saying there is, look, our Fourth Amendment protections will die not by one blow, but through kind of a death by a thousand cuts. So we're going to guard against even the first cut into our Fourth Amendment protections, i.e. in civil cases. And that's why the government can't retain the fruit of its illegal search and seizure in this civil case. And as you mentioned, in modern times, what the Supreme Court has subsequently and repeatedly made clear is that the exclusionary rule exists as a prophylactic to deter the government from violating the Fourth Amendment. Or if maybe if you're more of a carrot versus a stick person, to incentivize the government to respect our Fourth Amendment rights. And no one disputes that the Fourth Amendment's protections for searches and seizures themselves exist regardless of what type of proceeding the evidence searched or seized would be ultimately used in, or what exact uniform the investigating government official wears. It can be a police officer, it can be a tax investigator, it could be healthcare investigators. There are Fourth Amendment cases involving school teachers searching school students. Given the underlying rationale for the exclusionary rule, it doesn't really make sense then to slice and dice the exclusionary rule's avail availability based on the type of the case or the uniform the officer wears as the Michigan Court of Appeals did. And that's exactly what the U.S. Supreme Court has said to do is look at it on a case-by-case -case basis to determine whether excluding evidence in that particular case would serve that deterrent purpose. There's a case I like to point to from the 1980s called United States versus Leon, which encapsulates it nicely. The officers there basically did everything right. They applied for a warrant. A magistrate issued the warrant. The officers searched and seized evidence pursuant to that warrant. And then that evidence was used in court. 
But eventually on appeal, the U.S. Supreme Court said, actually, the probable cause in that warrant application wasn't good enough. The magistrate made a mistake. The warrant never should have issued. And that makes the search unconstitutional. But the U.S. Supreme Court said, we're not going to exclude that evidence here because the officers did what they were supposed to do. They sought and they obtained a warrant. And excluding evidence because of the magistrate's mistake wouldn't do anything to deter the officer's unconstitutional behavior. You can contrast that with what the Michigan Court of Appeals says about Long Lake Township zoning officers, that portion of the case that you quoted. The majority says that the zoning officers are just bureaucrats with little or no training in the Fourth Amendment. That's a direct quote that has made me chuckle a few times. And if that's true, that militates, if anything, more strongly in favor of applying the exclusionary rule to their unreasonable searches and seizures, because if they don't have training in Fourth Amendment law and the courts don't deter them from violating Fourth Amendment law, they're just going to keep on doing this over and over and over again. And if they don't have training, they're more likely to violate people's Fourth Amendment rights. So to sum up, I'd say that the, the reason it should apply in a, in a civil zoning enforcement case like this one is because that is what the Supreme Court has cautioned, is that this would have the deterrent effect on Fourth Amendment violations that is the focus of the modern inquiry, and it would protect people's Fourth Amendment rights. Well, that's a, that's a very comprehensive analysis there, and I, I, I thank you for it. And I kind of want to shift gears a little bit from the exclusionary rule into the Fourth Amendment violation itself, which I, I think is at the center of the case. And Probably the, the issue that most of the listeners will want to hear about. And that's, you know, the use of drones to surveil your client's property. As, you know, mentioned in the opening, the analysis for Fourth Amendment violations, at least for the past 50 or so years, generally depends on whether there's a reasonable expectation of privacy in the object or area at issue. And in this case, of course, that's your client's backyard. Now, certainly when you when I first read about this case, it kind of had this dystopian feel to it, to be sure. But then as I got into it, you know, and again, I'm no Fourth Amendment expert. It doesn't come up frequently in civil litigation, which is what I do. But my read is that the Fourth Amendment analysis is not necessarily about the technology itself. The focal point is really on the object or area at issue. And again, that, that's a backyard. And so when I'm reading about this case, I'm thinking constantly about Google Earth. You know, Google Earth is something that everybody knows about. Practically everybody has used it. And it would seem that that kind of technology would naturally diminish the expectation of privacy, at least in your backyard. You know, if, if Google can see your backyard and Bob Stetson in Massachusetts can see your Michigan backyard, perhaps you don't have as significant an expectation of privacy as, you know, maybe you did 60 or 70 years ago when no one could see in your backyard. So, and, and rhetorically, to be sure, the use of drones, it's got a dystopian feel, but and maybe it changes the analysis. I'm not sure it changes the result. And I did take a look at the, the flyover cases that were cited in your brief. I might not be pronouncing this correctly, but Sorallo and Riley. 
And in those cases, the Supreme Court's basically saying, if you can see it from a flyover, it's not a search. And so, you know, maybe it's kind of the same thing here. If you could see it on Google Earth, you know, maybe it's not a search. You know, technology has certainly changed our expectation or at least our the way we think about privacy, I, I think, in a lot of in a lot of different ways. So under the expectation of privacy analysis, I'm not sure I see a Fourth Amendment violation here. Mike, why am I wrong? I don't want to tell you that you're wrong at all. So I'll start with where you're right. You're absolutely right that one of the tests used to determine whether the government has committed a search is whether it violated your reasonable expectation of privacy. And as you outline, that comes from the 1967 case called Katz versus United States, where the court really shifted its focus, not from the text of the Fourth Amendment on our persons, our houses, our papers, and our effects, but instead to, again, as you outlined, whether somebody has exhibited a subjective expectation of privacy in, in what they are trying to be free from having searched and whether society is prepared to recognize that expectation of privacy as objectively reasonable. And just to kind of go over the, the quick facts of what happened in Katz, the police wiretapped a phone booth that Mr. Katz regularly used to place illegal sports bets. And the court had to decide whether that was a search, that wiretapping. And the government argued, well, we didn't intrude on Mr. Katz's person, his house, his paper. And the phone booth is a public phone booth. It's not his effect. And so it argued that it hadn't committed a Fourth Amendment violation. And the court was kind of uncomfortable with that result. And so it kind of invents this reasonable expectation of privacy test. And it says, well, Mr. Katz closed the phone booth door. So he exhibited a subjective expectation of privacy. And the court felt it was in a position to say society is prepared to recognize a phone booth as an objectively reasonable place where you expect privacy. And therefore, it was a search to wiretap that phone booth. And then that CATS test, that two-part test, became the predominant test that courts used for decades, as you pointed out. But it has gone with a lot of criticism over the years. After all, who are the courts to determine whether society, and I don't know if listeners can see my, my, my scare quotes around society, objectively believes that an expectation of privacy is reasonable. And so everything you said about the expectation of privacy test is, is along the right lines. But given all that criticism in 2012 and in 2013, in a pair of cases authored by Justice Scalia, United States versus Jones in 2012 and, and Florida versus Jardines in 2013, the court rejuvenated that old framework that had used before the Katz decision. A person, to be sure, can still establish a search under the Katz framework, but Jones and Jardines made clear that the person can also establish a search by showing that the government physically intruded on their person or their house or one of their papers or their effect for the purpose of obtaining information. And just as an example for how this plays out in practice before I finally bring it all back to our case. In Jones, the government placed a, a GPS tracking device in the wheel well of a suspect's car so that it could track his location movements over time. And the court didn't need to get into the much thornier question of whether he has this societally objective 
reasonable expectation of privacy in the sum of his movements or his location at any given moment, in theory, your location on the roadways might not be private at all. But rather, the court just said to install the tracking device, the government physically intruded on the suspect's private effect, his car, with the aim of obtaining evidence. That trespass or that physical intrusion carried the day. And while that test won't resolve every Fourth Amendment case, it makes a lot of them much easier and cleaner. And so that physical intrusion test that the court has really redeveloped in the last decade or so is our main argument in this drone case to bring it all back. The drone intruded on the Maxon's property. It flew all around their home multiple times over many months. And the government in doing so had the express purpose of gathering information about zoning code violations. Under the physical intrusion framework, that's simply a search. And we think the case is pretty easily resolvable under that new framework. Just fascinating stuff. Being able to litigate, you know, uh, all the Supreme Court jurisprudence, it's, it's got to be a lot of fun for you, Mike. It's a ton of fun. And it, it's also fun to not just see how we fit into existing case law under the Jones and Jardines test that I was mentioning, but it's also fun to distinguish existing precedent or, or get the court to kind of jettison it. And so all that to say, to bring it back to your question about Google Earth and the flyover cases, we aren't abandoning the expectation of privacy argument at all. And let's kind of start with your point about what you expose to the public in your backyard. What you may expose to the public in your backyard in, in an urban area is different than what the Maxons are doing in a rural area of Michigan. They live on a sprawling rural property and they've obstructed their backyard from view with trees and outbuildings or in, in many cases, not the Maxons, but in many cases, a fence. You exhibited your subjective expectation of privacy, and that's that's a pretty simple inquiry. But the objective expectation of privacy is where it gets a lot more complicated. And you mentioned those flyover cases, Serralo, I've never known how to pronounce that either, and Florida versus Riley. And in both cases, the government maneuvered around the fact that it couldn't see the person's property from ground level by doing what surely any reasonable person would do in that situation renting an aircraft and flying over the person's property to see it instead. Just a thing we all do on a normal day-to-day -day basis, right? In one case, it was an airplane flying at 1,000 feet above the property. In another, it was a helicopter at 400 feet above the property. And both times, the U.S. Supreme Court said no problem because, in theory at least, any person could lawfully do what the police did in those cases, rent a helicopter, rent an airplane, and fly over, and they could see it from an airborne position. So society didn't view their privacy from that surveillance as objectively reasonable. And we are, one of our arguments in, in, in this case, obviously, is that those cases might have come out a lot differently if the physical intrusion test into the airspace above your property was governing, not the reasonable expectation of privacy test. But also, I think even under the reasonable expectation of privacy test, at least the helicopter case is distinguishable, if not in a recent dissent, Justice Gorsuch mocked the idea that there's no expectation of privacy from a helicopter hovering about your property at 400 feet by simply saying, try that one out on your neighbors. We think that even if the court were to only have the reasonable expectation of privacy test, 
drones are so fundamentally different from helicopters. They are so much more intrusive than helicopters. They fly so much lower than helicopters that even if the helicopter case is right, all of those factors conspire to make them much more intrusive in their surveillance capabilities such that using them to gather evidence violates someone's reasonable expectation of privacy. And one last note on Google Earth that you mentioned, it's different for three reasons. Google Earth is not the government. And so the fact that Google is using imagery is different from the government, which is bound by the Fourth Amendment. Because Google Earth comes from satellite imagery that's way up in the sky, it doesn't intrude on private property the way that a drone hovering about does. And even as to the privacy test, satellite imagery is a lot less intrusive because it's just one still image from one snapshot in time rather than drones, which can be at will flown about the person's property every single day. We think that's a pretty distinguishing characteristic as well, that even if the contents of your backyard in one moment are, are not subject to a reasonable expectation of privacy, the ability to see it every single day at will by the government is, is fundamentally different. I want to ask you a little bit about the briefing process here. I, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the brief that you wrote to the Michigan Supreme Court. Apparently they did as well because they agreed to take the case. But, you know, it's right from the first sentence. This appeal asks this court to decide whether the government has unfettered discretion to use drones to spy on your home and then use that information to punish you in court for alleged zoning violations. You know, it's strong, direct, punchy, and you had stuff like that throughout the brief. It, you know, it, it really had it all. So I, I'd love for you to explain to the listeners or share, if you can, what was the process like? How many attorneys worked on this? How long did it take you? Uh, how many drafts did you get? Really anything you can share about how you put together this, this beautifully crafted brief. Well, that's extremely kind of you. And thank you very much. It is, as with everything at the Institute for Justice, a team-wide effort. As far as procedure goes, I think you always, as with any brief, need to start with researching and outlining the, the arguments that you ultimately want to cover. And surely it's stale advice that everybody gives and you need to find something that works for you. For me personally, I'm someone who likes to start with kind of a pretty broad outline of just maybe like a table of contents even. And then over time, making that outline more and more and more thorough until it's detailed enough that it actually starts to resemble a draft of a brief on its own. I might go through three or five or seven increasingly detailed versions of an outline. And again, air quotes around outline as to those later versions, which then allows you to focus the actual drafting less on developing the arguments in the first instance and more on the readability and punchiness and those turns of phrase that make the, the brief kind of much more readable or, or, or fun to read, maybe. I honestly don't know how many hours it took, as with almost any brief, probably far more than I would have liked. But one of the beautiful things of our practice, in addition to it being a team-wide effort, is that we limit the number of cases we take, not only to ensure that we're staying within our area of expertise and that we're making a difference on cases that we think we can really win, but to ensure we can really devote everything we have to each case. And so that, I guess, counsels in favor of the brief taking quite a long time. As for a team-wide effort, like all briefs, this was subject to lots of helpful revisions by our case team. On this case, it was my colleagues, Trace Mitchell, and the leader of all of our Fourth Amendment work, Rob Fromer, 
who's just a delightful human, wonderful mentor to learn from. And then all of our briefs at IJ get reviewed either by our director of litigation or our deputy director of litigation, who always have just incredibly insightful and, and helpful observations and suggestions. And then there's one other thing about our practice that I'll share that, that might be different from what a lot of lawyers are used to. And that's that unlike a lot of attorneys, we litigate in states all around the country in both state and federal courts. And that can be a big strain both on our attorneys and our paralegals who have to master all sorts of different local rules and filing procedures and getting up to speed on that front really takes a lot of time in its own right. And then there's also each state or each court's unique style or citation guides or you know fonts or citation formatting, everything like that. To us, winning a case is not just about how strong your arguments are in a vacuum, but you have to build credibility with the court as well. And part of that is in your briefing to us, presenting a briefing that doesn't look very different style or formatting wise from what the court is going to be used to from hometown attorneys. We don't want the court to be looking at us with any pauses. Who are these outsiders? And as for Michigan, Michigan's citation style and formatting is, I'll put it gently, very unique. They are entirely averse to periods in their case citations, for example. And I so we that. have a colleague. Yeah, it, it looks a little strange, right? There's no periods. They use parallel citations for, for everything. So each case has three different citations within its, its, its block. We have a colleague, an incredible colleague whose praise I will never be able to sing enough, who's a, a dedicated proofreader and site checker. And he makes sure not only that the cases we cite are actually saying the things that we say they, they say, but that we aren't going to be hometown because we use poor formatting or the wrong citation format or something like that. And so that's a, a thing that I don't think is super common in legal practice. But it's something that's a little unique to us, given how all around the country we, we tend to litigate. You mentioned a little bit in that answer about how you guys kind of control the workflow and manage your caseload so that you can devote appropriate time to a big brief assignment like this, for instance. And, you know, I noticed that you guys weren't involved in that original court of appeals decision or the oral argument. I presume that means you weren't involved at the trial court as well. So how did you, how did you guys get involved in this case? Believe it or not, it all started with a podcast just like this one. Our firm, Center for Judicial Engagement, hosts a podcast called Short Circuit, where they dissect interesting appellate decisions from around the country. My colleagues, Anthony Sanders and, and our mutual friend, John Ross, are always looking out for interesting state or federal appellate decisions to discuss on the podcast. And Anthony Sanders, while, uh, who, who hosts the podcast, while scrolling Twitter one day, found the original court of the first court of appeals decision in this case. They discussed it on the podcast and that turned into us saying, well, this is really interesting. We should be involved in some way here. That started out by us submitting an amicus brief on the exclusionary rule issue the first time that it came up. Unfortunately, the court did not you know, adopt our, or the court of appeals at least, did not adopt our arguments that we made in our amicus brief. But then when that second court of appeals decision came out, we got in touch with the Maxons existing attorneys and, and the Maxons themselves. And, and, and we took the case over directly for appeal to the Michigan Supreme Court. And so 
we were not involved in the trial court. We were not involved at the Court of Appeals initially. We were started off sort of involved as an amicus later on, and now the case is entirely ours for the time being. When is the oral argument? Still to be determined. We won't know before October. The court only does oral argument between October and May. After that, anyone's guess. Given when in the cycle the court accepted this case, I would, I would guess later in that cycle rather than earlier, but we'll be ready for whenever it is. What is the IJ prep method for a big oral argument like this one? Lots and lots and lots of moots. We do internal moots upon internal moots. And like I said, for brief writing, everyone's going to have their own process for how they prepare themselves for those moots and for the argument itself, you know, big binders and all sorts of stuff. But we have a whole team effort, usually moots attended by anywhere from five to 10 other attorneys lobbing questions at you. We want the moot to be a lot harder than the actual argument tends to go so you're prepared for anything that can happen at oral argument. What other cases are you working on? Lots of them. You know, we are a nonprofit public interest law firm. We don't charge our clients a dime. We litigate all around the country, as I've been talking about. And we do so in four key issue areas, property rights, free speech, educational choice, and economic liberty, that latter of which we define as the right to earn an honest living free from unreasonable government interference. As for a project on the Fourth Amendment, as you might tell from our discussion of the Jones and the Jardines cases, that falls into what we consider our property rights cases. Some of our other standout Fourth Amendment cases include one that I'm working on that's on appeal at the Ninth Circuit right now, in which the FBI raided a private safety deposit box company, searched and seized all of the contents of every single person's private safety deposit box then tried to permanently keep all of the valuable property in all of those boxes, despite not having probable cause to believe any of the box holders themselves had done anything wrong. We think that violates the Fourth Amendment, and we're arguing that to the Ninth Circuit in a, a forthcoming appeal. In the realm of economic liberty, I'll be arguing at the Fourth Circuit later this year about the constitutionality of a Virginia law that bans people from working as substance abuse counselors for life if they've ever been convicted of a long laundry list of crimes, even if their conviction is decades old, and even if it was while they themselves were suffering from substance abuse disorder of, of some way, and now they've overcome that. And those people tend to be the best substance abuse counselors because they can relate to people going through those struggles. And so we're, we're challenging the constitutionality of that law. I'm looking forward to arguing that at the Fourth Circuit this fall as well. Mike, how can listeners get involved and support IJ? All of our work is on IJ.org. That's I as an igloo, J as in justice.org. All of our work, not just our litigation, but our public opinion advocacy, our legislative team, our policy research reports, and everything in between is really well documented there. My understanding is that so there's a big Give Now button on the top of the website for people that would care to support our work. And you can sign up to read our flagship publication called Liberty and Law, which every two months can keep listeners up to date on all of our new cases, victories, and, and other happenings. We sue the government when the government violates the Constitution. And unfortunately, business is booming, and we would love for, for listeners to hear all about it. Mike, thank you so much for your time today, and best of luck with this Michigan Supreme Court. 
Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. That's our show. Check out the show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you are involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at bernkoflegal.com. That's rstetson at b-e-r-n-k-o-p-f legal.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a positive review. Follow us on Instagram at Legal Judgments, on Twitter at Legal underscore Judgments, and on LinkedIn at Legal Judgments Podcast. And don't forget that E in Judgments.